Well, that surely is one of the most um, touching ballads of uh, lost love uh, in the history of pop music. L'Amour est Bleu, Love is Blue by Paul Moriart from early 1968. And I want to talk a little bit about the limits of mourning. I want to talk a little bit about the limits of the blueness of love today um, and uh, a um, point of view by which we press the therapeutic effect of loss and experienced mourning to its furthest degree and then yet come up with a gap. And then I'll try to fill in the gap, you might say, pastorally or poetically or simply personally from my own experience. The um, interest here was touched by the coming release uh, in August of this year, which is 2013, on DVD and Blu-ray of the almost completely uh, forgotten, I say completely forgotten simply because I never knew about it, and I thought I knew about these things, so it just shows you it may not have been completely forgotten, but uh, de facto for moi, completely forgotten movie version of the very touching and shocking and yet reconciling book by William Inge entitled Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff. This short novel was published in 1970 and it's not in print, but you can easily get a paperback copy. It's easy to find. And um, this remarkable and I find almost... um, uh, uh, kind of decisive novel about the nature of the loss of hope from which some kind of future can come, but not enough. This remarkable novel was made in 1979, released rather, into a very fine movie with an excellent director and marvelous actors and actresses uh, like uh Anne Haywood, who is not so well-known, but Donald Pleasance and Robert Vaughn, and um, Carolyn, whatever her name is, uh, from the Jones, from the Adams family. And it was made into a very faithful um, uh, movie version. I've only seen clips of it, but the clips I've seen, and I've seen a fair number of clips, is very faithful to this shocking novel, which sort of bombed, although it it was beautifully reviewed by some in 1970. But the movie because it's completely misunderstood, in my opinion, has lost uh, its ability to to even be in circulation. And so I think it'll be a good thing that this film is coming out. And you can see it for yourself in late August when it's released. And um, the movie, based very faithfully on the book, let me talk about the book, uh, is a story of a truly um, upsetting incident in the life of a 40-year-old lonely uh, teacher of high school in a small Kansas town who, um, now here I want to say this in such a way that I don't give it away. She is going through a total crisis of confidence as a person, and Inge was very clear to point out of her own sexuality because she is um, a virgin and a spinster, and it's 1954 or late 40s, uh, People think it's the 60s, but it's actually set in the mid-50s. And she has never uh, had sexual intercourse with a man. 
and she is um, really uh, at her wit's end of loss and loneliness. Now, this is, of course, people now entirely are going to read this into various attitudes of the day. Uh, but Inge himself talked about this book. He thought he'd poured everything he had into this late book in his life. She's actually simply a depressed human being who has absolutely no real sympathetic love in her life. Certainly not embodied, but absolutely no understanding whatsoever. She is completely on her own. She has parents with whom she's not in touch far away. She lives in kind of a rooming house. She is utterly and completely alone, and her only friends are a few other single teachers whom she knows from her job. And she is a desperate human being who uh, has nothing to live for. She's a liberal. She has confronted some free speech issues very credibly and very very creditably and also very credibly in this town. It's not a racist place, but it is 1954 sort of Missouri or Kansas. So it has a, a, there is racism in the town. There are all sorts of attitudes. But she has confronted them and spoken very strongly in favor of, I think, a book that was going to be banned in the library. She's a independent, thoughtful, but utterly alone human being who is a liberal by profession. She is not really religious, but she attends the Presbyterian Church from time to time, and she is suicidally uh, at loose ends. She consults a very good, young, handsome doctor who is completely of, of, uh, above the fray, who then uh, sends her to a... Uh, a um, a psychoanalyst, a, a Jewish psychiatrist that J- Judaism has made a point of in Inge because she has to sort of overcome some kind of initial bar to going all the way into Kansas City and seeing this um, this man who represents a completely different world than the confining one she is in. But again, this is not about worlds. This is about a human being. And this uh, psychiatrist helps her, and he understands that she is going through a kind of uh, uh, menopausal uh, uh, crisis uh, that is actual. It, she's tested and she's in a complete tailspin and she develops the idea through therapy that she needs to have some kind of a relationship with a man, which she knows already. And she has one very and somewhat humiliating encounter with a bus driver. And then um, through, in a sense, uh, a variety of dependent arisings that have only to do with what she wants, but it, it, it is a, inexplicably she finds herself drawn into a very dark and extremely upsetting uh, relationship with a uh, the janitor in the school where she works. And there is a racial a theme. It's not a subtext. It's very much there. But the uh, critics who saw the movie then and who read the book now co- completely off on the racial aspect of it, which is clearly there, but this is not that. This is the kind of headline you get in London all the time where it says, you know, young, a 32-year-old, single teacher uh, is uh, in court at the Gloucester Assizes for having a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old boy in her class at the local comprehensive school or wherever it is in this country. And uh, uh, a a, a terrible uh, uh, relationship develops that is, we would call it today, a highly abusive relationship. But uh, Inge sees her as kind of then developing a kind of Stockholm Syndrome 
interest in this man who is treating her horribly and abusing her in every sense of the word and she begins to kind of um kind of go along with it now people can't stand this and i i'm not making any um uh, uh brief brief for it but this kind of thing happens to people all the time they are taken over by some kind of acting out that touches other kinds of needs hungers and also highly self-damaging and masochistic um uh, deeper threads and parts of her are kind of deep deep um um negativism towards her own self which has hitherto resulted in a painful uh, spinsterish persona this has been made in the movies before with Joanne Woodward and other people but this is an extreme case and uh, she goes down to a living hell and is caught and pays a terrible price for what she has allowed herself to get into, but she has also been forced into it. Both the things have worked together. And you must read the book as a study, not in attitudes, please, not in some kind of societal issues, because the same thing happens today, but just takes different forms, because it's always happened and always will. The desperate desire not to be alone and not to live your life with absolute no love and relationship in a complete hellhole of unwanted um, uh, loss and utter uh, vulnerable longing and hunger is what creates this woman's uh, private and then public hell. And yet the book like the movie, ends on... Oh, by the way, the mo- movie has music you can get it on YouTube by Eric Gold, who did um, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and the theme from Exodus, a wonderful a, uh, A-line Hollywood uh, musician. It's fabulous music, full of the longing and the tragedy and the bittersweet character of poor Evelyn uh, Wyckoff. And um, it has a bittersweet ending in that, in that uh, she... Um, she is wished at the end good luck by um, someone who, in a sense, does a kind of slightly heroic thing by even expressing goodwill towards this poor afflicted woman as uh, she goes to her future. And uh, it's not imprisonment or anything like that, uh, but it is a total humiliation and defeat of the most um, just... Uh, discomforting and 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 soul destroying, and, and you feel so much for her. Now, the power of the book and the power of the movie lies not at all in the um, attitudes that are related, the McCarthyism, the segregation, all the different things that people have talked about. Because Inge, as you know, wasn't really interested in those things. He said very explicitly in uh, his um, what was it? I have it here. It's his. Uh, it's uh, let me get it actually let me just find it uh inge in his uh, 1960 play which he regarded as his best play i don't think it is but he felt though you have to listen to that a loss of roses inge wrote in the preface to a loss of roses because he would comment on his work he says i feel that in a loss of roses now hold on this is not a detour I feel that in A Loss of Roses, I've been able to make clearer than in any of my other plays an existentialist view I've come to adopt during the last 10 years, that man can only hope for an individual peace in the world. And like Whitman, quote, I swear nothing is good to me now that ignores individuals, end of quote. Finishes Inge, all attempts to deal with men in groups or as objects of time and environment, I think, fail. Oh, 
Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the power of good luck, Ms. Wyckoff, because she is an individual who is utterly and completely gored uh, by life. Remember what cousins remember what cousins said in the notorious time interview in nineteen fifty eight was it when he said um, the one thing I am convinced of I have no ideology he said, but the one thing I am convinced of is that for most people, life gives them a raw deal and Miss Wyckoff is a person who receives a truly raw deal. she acts out in the way many of us have not most of us have not acted out, but many of us have felt. She goes off into an uncertain future of complete um, alienation and aloneness. And yet with, because this is what I'm going to get to towards the end, a kind of possible optimism that you derive if you read kind of with experience, or I feel it. And I've read the book now twice through and then carefully a sort of third time bits and pieces, especially the last 20 pages and the beginning part. The... um, the good luck that is wished upon her is something that is real, and the power of it, it's not, as Inge has clearly pointed out, about groups and classifications or objects. It's about one woman, one person, who has to find her own way after committing a terrible mistake, which, however, you could have seen coming a mile away, a 10,000 miles away, if anyone had given a damn. And the pathos of it is that no one does. And here we have Inge. Inge gives a damn. He cares deeply about his characters. Now, I've always felt that William Inge was a writer with a strong Christian perspective. I say that because he said it. He said it uh, in many places, specifically in his original introduction to the uh, I think the first edition of uh, four of his plays uh, in the 50s, or maybe it was 1960, this wonderful um, introduction to uh, his plays where he talks about, in the dark at the top of the stairs, a Christian view of life. And it comes out in A Loss of Roses when the evangelist speaks over the radio, and it comes out in Splendor in the Grass when he, Inge himself, in the flesh, playing the rector of the Episcopal Church, uh, says it, etc., etc. Uh, this man, in a way, reaches the exact and complete limits of the Christian perspective on uh, human beings because he um, has such compassion. He has complete compassion for Miss Wyckoff. And I'm going to say the limits of it after I read you the last paragraph. And don't worry, this does not give away the... Um, the uh, the uh, the plot dynamics at all. Evelyn, I've got to say goodbye, said the landlady. I'm terribly sorry, Evelyn. Those were the only words that found their way out of her tight throat. Thank you, Mrs. Hemming. I just want you to know that I will. I'm still your friend. Thank you. And good luck. The taxi tooted its horn impatiently. Good luck. Good luck. Thanks, Miss Wyckoff thought, getting into the taxi. I'll need it. The driver was an old man she had never seen before. There was an impersonality about his manner that she was most grateful for. Probably he was an old farmer who had to come to town to make a living and did not recognize Miss Wyckoff or even know who she was. She began to relax as she sat down in the back seat of the taxi, even though the sounds of the words good luck had begun to seem ominous to her. Usually the words were used to express the most commonplace sentiments that accompany a farewell. But Evelyn had come to realize now that the words expressed their speaker's anxiety about her. For what else could anyone reasonably wish Miss Wyckoff but good luck? Good luck constituted her only hope for the future. Wherever she went, whatever she did, 
She would need lots of it. Now, that is the furthest limits of a Christian perspective on this uh, tragic uh, situation of the 40-year-old uh, road to nowhere, but journey to the future person. And I myself believe that there's going to be something, uh, there's going to be something a little hopeful here because of the nature of George. You know, we've talked about him, the nature of George, who I got to know in a new way on this 2nd of April, uh, 2013, outside the Carolina Playmakers Theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And um, I'm going to conclude by um, something further. You see, the trouble with Inge's perspective. It is a grace that is utterly authorial, completely heartfelt, and to the max. It is 100% grace, but it is, in a very real way, a non-availing or unavailing. We used to sing, Hallelujah, His blood avails for me. I once was lost, but now I've found. Uh, Hallelujah, His blood avails for me. It availeth much, I agree, I agree, but in this poor case, the authorial compassion of William Inge availeth little in the story for his, I'm sure he loved her, character of Evelyn Wyckoff. And so I'm driven as I review, you see, for the awful lot of people, um, religion doesn't avail. It's there, but it doesn't avail. And um, it's absolutely... um, wanting to avail. We need it to avail. We desperately need the authorial voice of compassion that uh, William Inge had upon his 1970 character in the novel Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, but we so want it to avail. And this is where I think uh, we desperately... No, 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 that's the right... That's, I was going to say definitely. It came out desperately, and that's neither of those words is the correct one. This is where we simply, plainly need something that will give it to us. We need a, we need a, uh, well, one word is practice, but we need, um, we need a hope that it can be given to us. And this hope is really only, ultimately, I feel, to be accomplished in some form of transcendence. In other words, yes, Evelyn Wyckoff needs and needs it all. Good luck. Will she get it? Well, at a certain point, we have to say, we have to, in a sense, transcend the very question. Whether she gets it or not, there is a transcendent uh, reality with a capital R uh, to which we, in a sense, have to hurdle. We have to leap over the hurdle of the either-or character or the conditional character of Miss Wyckoff's good luck to something that is above and beyond. Now, I used to not believe this. I used to feel that, well, I mean, after all, you know, what she needs is she needs the very grace that, uh, say, at its best, uh, the Christian fellowship or the Christian uh, new uh, Jerusalem, the new world at its best can give her. Uh, But um, my experience, sadly, has been that uh, that's a partial good, that it... uh, fails as often as it doesn't fail, and then an enormously high percentage of Christian people come into the place of aging where they are utterly um, not not helped by their religion, and they kind of sit back for the hills. Now, I'm going to stop here and look for something else. Uh, Yes, here it is. This is a quotation from an essay by someone named John Yale. 
an essay entitled Suffering that was first published in a book, I think, in 1951. And uh, he is uh, trying to uh, explain or try to uh, sort of say, look, we need a religion, says John Yale, who's tried a lot of religions. Uh, he, we need a religion that actually meets the real needs of someone like Evelyn Wyckoff at age 40 or at age 60, but let's just keep her where she is. And uh, this is a paragraph that uh, occurs. He says um, in this essay entitled Suffering, John Yale says, As usually played, life represents a poorly written little dramatic effort in which the interest all dissipates after the first act, running into sheer inanity at the final curtain. Life does ravel out towards the end. A study of hundreds of the Elderly by Professor Havighurst of University of Chicago. He's writing in the 50s. A study of hundreds of seniors provided telling evidence of its progressive meaningless for most people. Now, this is the key paragraph. This is one of the leading difficulties you ask your religion to help you settle. What you want in a religion is a way of relieving distress which becomes more operative as the troubles of later life become more serious. What you want is to reverse the play's bad construction, turning it into a production of mounting action rising steadily to a powerful finale. You don't want a murky failure. You want a smash hit. Well, what he's saying is that uh, your religion needs to settle the case of poor Miss Wyckoff, for whom nothing has worked, and only uh, a desperate failure in her uh, attempts to find some way out of the egg, to, for the chick to, to peck its way out of the egg, and she hasn't succeeded. And uh, she is in a position of, of, of absolute um, humiliating failure. Today it would be all over the papers. Thank God they didn't have them for Miss Wyckoff, because she can, in fact, find a way out uh, by going to a town where no one has met her or knows her. And it's possible in the year in which Inge is thinking about this that she might conceivably open up a new life, at least professionally, and hopefully at a far deeper level. Well, the answer is, what is a religion that will really give this to us? Now, I'm not going to prejudice that because I don't really, I can't put it in religious terms. That is to say, I can't put it into ideologically religious terms. I can't say, well, this religion or that religion or this aspect of Christianity or that aspect of Christianity or this aspect of Eastern thought or whatever it is. What I can say is that there is a uh, sense in which uh, we are required to transcend and move into a sort of oneness as opposed to the 10,000 things of Chinese thought. Uh, where, where in the world is, what, how did he make that switch? Well, I was, I, was, um, I was sitting quietly this morning. And I was saying to myself, well, now, uh, to what end am I meditating here? To what end am I meditating to some sense of uh, uh, kind of just white, pure, you know, Jack Kerouac's milk, you know, the, the burnished pearl in which there's absolutely no echo of present experience or past, I should say, past experience and all the associations and identifications and clingings and attachments of life. To, to what end? What, what is the sort of metaphysical ontic end? And, uh, of course, I thought the answer would come back, well, there is no end. You know, the moment you talk about an end, you've cashed it in. But that's not what came to me. What came to me is a sort of unity. To what end am I doing this? Paul, to what end are you doing this? And the word was a sort of unity. And that is that, uh, that sense of oneness, that sense of a one reality with a capital R, 
as opposed to the 10,000 things, and all of them are listed by Inge, and upon all of them he has compassion. He is to me, now there are others, I mean, Tennessee Williams very much has it in several of his plays and much of his writing, but I certainly haven't read all of Tennessee Williams of late. But um, William Inge has it across the board. He obviously had a kind of compassion for himself that developed into a compassion for his mother, that developed into a compassion for his father and his siblings, and finally developed into a compassion for the human race and on himself and on everyone. And when he cares enough to tell Miss Wyckoff's ugly but so upsetting and so sympathetic and so heartbreaking, she breaks your heart and you want to take her and help her and lead her by the hand and take her to water. This is a man who is in touch with all that compassion offers, and yet it is unavailing, at least in the fictional uh, environment and in a great many people I know. And so uh, the question then becomes, um, and I would say that the answer has something to do with some kind of connection with the oneness. The answer to the love is blue, even love, even grace can be terribly, terribly blue. The answer is some kind of transcendent love, which is goes beyond the particular and the personal. And that is where I guess we come into the area of uh, the mystic or the, um, well, as I said, the, the, the some sense of unity. And that's what I leave you with. And I leave you with um, Jeff Beck's little uh, interpretation of um, l'amour, life, is blue.